Yes, sir. We are back with another episode of Best Case Ever, the mini podcast series as part of Emergency Medicine Cases. I am your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan, and on today's show, we have a very special guest. It's Dr. Joel Lockwood. He's an emergency physician and TTL right downtown in Toronto, Ontario, Canada at St. Michael's Hospital. And he also happens to be a transport medical physician with Orange, which is our critical care paramedic service. And he's here today to tell us about his best case ever. So Joel, you take it away. Hit me with something good. Hey, thanks for having me. So I guess a bit of background about my best case. So I work doing trauma, working for the ambulance, which is a trauma team where a doctor and a physician are dispatched pre-hospital to trauma, arrive there either by car or by helicopter, and really work on the first 10 or 15 minutes of trauma resuscitation before taking the patient to a hospital. And so I was called to dispatch to a female that was struck by a bus. We arrived by car shortly afterwards. I was with a paramedic. We arrived, there was a bus, we could see the scene, the bus was stopped. There was a lot of police and fire crews around. The bus had stopped sort of just beside a kind of concrete wall and you could just see people working on a patient. So we made our way to the scene and it was a pretty grisly scene actually. The bus was partially on the patient's pelvis. The head was out on the side and the patient's legs were wrapped around the wheel well a bit. It seems like the paramedics had just got there a few minutes before. The vitals were just getting in. The heart rate was about 130, and the blood pressure was about 80 systolic. And around that time, we found the patient had a few other medical problems as well. So we knew that there was a heart condition with an ICD, and that was kind of how things started. So, I mean, that's a lot to deal with right off the bat. You have already used the word grisly. What was the primary survey like? Well, the first thing I think was identifying that the patient was pretty sick. So the primary survey showed that there was bilateral open femur fractures. There was a lot of tissue lost in the legs as well. So there was a lot of fat and muscle kind of splayed open. I was worried there was an open pelvic fracture as well. There was certainly a big degloving of the skin and soft tissues on the flank, on the right flank, which was facing up and was sort of under the bus. There was a lot of devitalized tissue. And with a bit of further examination, I could tell the patient wasn't actually physically trapped on her pelvis by the wheel, but part of her flank, the skin and fat, was underneath the wheel, and there was a fair bit that was devitalized. The patient... Soft tissue, you mean? Yeah, exactly. It was probably about two or three inches thick, but just soft tissue. But I could put my hand between the pelvis and the wheel, so we knew that the wheel wasn't actually on the patient's pelvis. So she's pinned. You don't have even any IV access yet. You're worried about all these injuries. What do you do next? The decision we had to make was whether we were going to lift the bus up or whether we were going to try to take the patient out without lifting the bus up. And unfortunately, I was going to have to require cutting of some of that tissue that was under the bus. So I was pretty happy that it was very devitalized, like it was definitely crushed. And there was probably only three inches of it that was under the wheel. So I thought that we'd be able to efficiently move the patient quite a bit better if we didn't lift the bus. We were given an estimate that was going to take 10 minutes. Oftentimes, in my experience, it takes more than that. But I knew if we cut it, it would be probably about 30 seconds. Ooh, that is a, an aggressive move, and necessarily so. Had you even done one of these before? Well, so we, that was the first time I've done it in real life. We've simulated a few times, and when I was working in London, there was a lot of, like, there was daily practice on different types of scenarios for things like this to sort of help decision-making. And I think the principle is, is that you really want to avoid cutting anything unless you think it's a life-and-death situation. And in this case, I think we all kind of agreed that she didn't look... You know, her color wasn't very good. She didn't look like she was perfusing very well. And I don't think we had the time. As well, the bus wasn't in a very convenient location. Like it was right up near a curb. 
And it was very difficult to kind of get access around to the patient. And I felt very uncomfortable at this point because we, while we had vitals, we had no lines. We just had oxygen on the patient. So there was not much we could do until the patient was out. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a super stressful situation already. I mean, how did you manage the airway with everything else that's going on? That's so much cognitive burden. If you see something and you're very stressed out and you get asked a very simple task, you'll see people that are just completely, you know, their mind, they can't do simple things. And that happened to me a couple of times where I was asked to get a bag of fluid. And I remember in my training month, it was so stressful. I couldn't even remember where a bag of fluid was. But through the training and through the job, you know, we'd be tested on these things and you'd go through it. You go to the point where they'd ask you how many places a three-way tap was in a bag. And you'd have to be able to say, because if you had a kid, a three-month-old infant that was injured, and you're going to have to use a three-way tap to dilute drugs, and you lost one of the three-way taps, you got to know where the other ones are. So a lot of it was that kind of repetition. So we did things, you know, the same way we always did it. We were very happy with the positioning being optimized. We were very happy with our plan. First, second, third. We had a scalpel ready in case things weren't able to work out. We had an LMA ready. We had our doses. And when I went and looked in, so the mouth was really small. The laryngoscope just barely fit in. When I looked in, though, the cords were tiny. So I was able to get a bougie through the cords relatively easy. And the first tube that we had was much too big. Seven, you mean? Yeah, which, you know, I think looking back was probably the wrong size. You probably should have used a smaller one to begin with. I was able to get it down the bougie. I was able to get it to the cords. And I twisted a little bit, but it, it clearly wasn't going in. So we had to try with a six. Now, the trick with the six is that that's the smallest size you can get over a standard size bougie. And you have to know that ahead of time because you have to keep the bougie straight or else you won't be able to get a six over it. So we had to, you know, we knew that already. We planned it because this is, again, something that came up in training because it had happened. It was a problem before. So it was made a kind of a learning objective. We were able to put the six in and wire it through. And with just a bit of a twist, we were able to get it by without any pressure. So in a situation like that, I mean, I've only done a couple of ride-alongs with paramedics, but my understanding is it's people that you've probably never worked with before. How do you keep things organized, you know, when you're trying to do something like an acute critical intervention, like an airway? So I think, first of all, is the system of how to do things is really very standardized. And there's a lot of practice that goes into it. So there's one way on how to put someone onto a scoop stretcher. You know, there's the way to intubate someone is a very complex system, but it's done one way. So the idea is, is oftentimes you'll work with a paramedic you've never worked with before. And in about 30% of the cases we'd see, we'd intubate people. But despite that, you're going to be doing it the same way. And there's very little communication on who does what or how you like things or those types of things. You do lose a little bit because you may like something a certain way. So for instance, I didn't always use a bougie, but the rule there was is you always used a bougie. And so it became very predictable that you'd look with the laryngoscope, you'd say exactly what you saw, you'd say your grade view, you'd ask for a bougie, you'd put your hand up in the same spot, the bougie would be put in your hand the same way, just like you'd practice many times. You'd insert the bougie, you'd pass the tube over the bougie, and it ended up being just quite a system. And even though this was a pretty stressful case, especially when you know we found some things we weren't expecting to, that the system kind of helps out. And we were able to focus on the things that were different in this case and how we were going to manage that by relying on kind of the habit of how we normally do things. Now, we talked a lot about the A's and even some of the C's. You mentioned that she had some chest crepitus, I think. Did you think she needed a needle or maybe a chest tube? 
so we do needles in very, very rare situations. By the time we got a bit of blood into her, we were able to get a sat, which came back in the 90s. So with just oxygen, that was okay. But there was a lot of crepitus, and I think that there was a left side of pneumothorax. So as part of our airway plan, we planned on doing a thoracostomy right afterwards. So we didn't put in chest tubes with the idea being that if you intubate somebody, they're going to be have positive pressure ventilation. So it's really unlikely that they're going to get a tension pneumothorax. And if they were to get something, all you have to do is kind of open the hole. Chest tubes take a really long time to put in secure check. And I think that in the pre-hospital setting where you're moving people a lot, where our times were relatively short, that the benefit they have, of, you know, which is kind of treating a pneumothorax and measuring the amount of blood probably didn't outweigh the risks of it getting kinked or clotted or being in the wrong spot. So, I mean, you've done a lot of work already in the pre-hospital setting. You've got an airway done, you've got her extricated, you got a finger thoracostomy done, you got the pelvic binder, you got some splints on these potentially open femurs. I mean, this is a good trauma recess. Yeah, yeah. And you're not even in the van yet. Yeah, I think our time was about 30 minutes too. So from being on scene to leaving was about 30 minutes. So how does having a pre-hospital doc on the ambulance work into the concept of the supposed, you know, golden hour of trauma? You know, everything we get taught is that you shouldn't be wasting time staying and playing in the field. Get them to a level one center as soon as you can. Well, I think there's a few things like this is someone that had quite a few interventions. So I think that there's that, right? Like, I don't know what would have happened if the person wouldn't have had early blood transfusions. They weren't looking very good. I think that this is someone that if, I think if you were going to look at the perfect kind of standard of care of what you'd want, like if someone was injured in a trauma bay, you'd want to be intubated because this was probably something that was absolutely excruciating. So just for that reason, to anesthetize someone, to be able to, you know, reduce their pelvis and straighten out their legs, I think is very important. And I think that, you know, we were able to basically call a surgeon and there was indications for OR already. So an OR was waiting for us. So we knew that it would be very quick to get to the OR once we did it. So I think that like, as far as interventions, I think that we help with those things. Now, as far as deciding, I think you probably are unlikely to be able to have a system of someone being physically cut out of somewhere without a physician there pretty early. So I think that was another thing too, because that probably saved us quite a bit of time. And I think that may have been the difference between life and death in a case like this is actually just getting them out and getting them resuscitated as best we could. So the whole role of what happens in a trauma bay of a tertiary trauma center in, in, in a place like London, a lot of that happens at the side of the road, at the scene of an ambulance. And I found that really interesting. As a clinician, it was very difficult and different to see early trauma because it is different. Like when you see someone 10 minutes after they've been run over by a car, their physiology is different. And a lot of people that are going to die are going to die regardless. And that sometimes is difficult to see. So it gave me a lot of respect for what paramedics go through on a day-to-day basis. But it's also the physiology is different. You know, people that are bleeding to death will have normal vital signs. And I think identifying that earlier and treating that earlier hopefully is beneficial as well. Some really great insights here that Joel is giving us and is something that most of us probably never really think about, which is the challenges faced by EMS in a pre-hospital setting for a complicated trauma patient. And it's interesting to hear that in the context of actually involving a pre-hospital MD. I really like the idea, too, that Joel is emphasizing earlier that practice and simulation can really make stressful situations a lot less stressful because everyone knows their role, knows their place, and some things just come back to muscle memory. He also emphasized the utility of checklists, and this is something that seems to keep coming up for critical care eMERGE patients 
the idea that by having a checklist, we can offload that focus on the minutia and the stress and reducing the chance of errors and just focusing on getting a very important task done smoothly and efficiently. So Joel, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And to everyone else, until next time, keep your stick on the ice. I'm your host for Best Case Ever, Rajiv Thavanathan. You can follow me on Twitter at Rajiv Thava. That's at R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Okay, bye now. Bye now.